Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about American families. Let's go above the fold with today's headlines. Per reporting from the Miami Herald, on Monday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill declaring the end of the state of emergency for the state, overriding all local power by lifting their restrictions and banning any policy that requires proof of vaccination, including public schools, despite already existent requirements for other vaccinations. The Florida law allows for private companies to require masks, but bars the government from making any such restrictions. Quote, I think it's the evidence-based things to, to do, DeSantis said at a St. Petersburg restaurant where he signed the bill with House Speaker Chris Sprouls and Senate President Wilton Simpson at his side. Quote, I think folks that are saying that they need to be policing people at this point, if you're saying that, you really are saying you don't believe in the vaccines, you don't believe in the data, you don't believe in the science. We are no longer in the state of emergency, end quote. On Sunday, Florida registered 3,841 new COVID cases, 31 deaths, and had a count of 6.3 million people vaccinated, which is only 30% of the population. Florida currently ranks 38th among states in its vaccination efforts. Terrell, Caleb, does this sound like the evidence-based thing to do? Because in order for these vaccinations to be effective, as the governor cites in his comments, people actually have to be vaccinated for them to be effective. 30% isn't even close to herd immunity. How is this the evidence-based thing to do? The answer to your question is it's not. I concur. (laughs) Um, When has DeSantis done anything (laughs) evidence-based or scientific-based when it comes to Florida? But uh, let us not forget the second wave was single-handedly caused by Florida reopening too early and allowing people to come down for spring break and then travel back to their states as if we were in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, I I mean, Ron DeSantis is somehow a 2024, should I say, favorite right now? He's actually, he's not somehow. In every poll that matters next to Trump, he is the top person. And and a lot of people say that it's because of how he handled the pandemic, which was shit. So I... That's because you guys are still confusing the QOP with the GOP. I'll do you, the same thing. You got to let, no, the GOP's dead. We can just own that the GOP's dead. Yeah, I was like, I'm not convinced that they're either not the same thing or one doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's what's happening. I mean, you have all these people who don't believe that COVID is real and, you know, they're anti-vaxxers and whatnot. And, you know, you get big waves of COVID in Florida and somehow Ron DeSantis comes out as the best governor in the pandemic to handle the pandemic. And everyone else is looking around like, uh, what? Right. And I think that here's something, something that I think is really pissing me off about this is like, and also kind of across the board with the Republican party where they're at today is he quote unquote, you know, came out on the, at at the end of this pandemic as having done a better job by some people's, um, measurements. Mm -hmm. That's because even though like, that's because our expectation was so low the damage was already done so badly that the numbers that he was at, despite being open, were said to have been a good risk, like cost risk analysis. And that has nothing to do with him actually having created solutions for the problem, which is the pandemic. No, we just all accepted that thousands of people were going to die a day and that was fine. Yeah. And, And let us not miss the double standard here too, right? There were legitimate allegations that DeSantis was fixing the numbers to keep Florida open during the pandemic. And that story, by and large, got swept under a rug, wasn't paid attention to, so much so that one of the scientists from um, the health department for Florida had to come out in public ways and tell her side of the story. Now, you move just up the coast a little bit to New York, where another governor fixed numbers for nursing homes, and there have been legitimate calls for them to resign. So I do think, to your point, Torrance, um, we're seeing the death of a party wholeheartedly, not caring about facts, not caring about people's lives, not caring about any substance that matters normally when you're governing. And Ron DeSantis just fits that. He's an idiot. That's, That's the point. And, you know, I was watching some coverage today and one of the commentators was asking or posing the question regarding the this law banning vaccinations for 
COVID vaccinations for public schools mm-hmm. or not banning them, but rather not banning uh, requirements for them. And they asked the question, you know, is anyone going to ask him what is different about the COVID vaccine and requiring it than from requiring, you know, the measles, mumps, chicken pox, et cetera? Like, what is, what is the scientific difference? What is the thing that makes that one different other than politics? And why aren't the Republicans championing this vaccine when all they want to talk about is Operation Warp Speed and how their great savior did so did so many amazing things when it came to the COVID vaccine? We can go on a rant about this all day. Yeah, I was like, I'm done <laughs> with it. Because quite frankly, at this point, I feel like we're giving air to idi- idiocy and um, yeah, frustrated would be an understatement. Well, another news. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is reportedly making moves to boot Liz Cheney, the number three House Republican leader and the representative from Wyoming. This comes after Cheney voted to impeach Donald Trump for the January 6th insurrection. According to Axios, McCarthy was caught on a hot mic saying that he has lost confidence in Cheney and that she has real problems. And that's a quote. A statement that came out of Cheney's office in the past has said, This is about whether the Republican Party is going to perpetuate lies about the 2020 election and attempt to to whitewash what happened on January 6th. Liz will not do that. That is the issue. So I want to get both of your reactions to this. Obviously, everybody knows when they're on a hot mic. That is not an actual thing, to my knowledge, that people don't know when they're on the hot mic. Um, So I want to get both your reactions. And I have a couple questions to follow up with that. Do y'all think that this is just another sign that the GOP is getting worse? And do you believe that the GOP is worse than it was uh, under Trump six months ago? Take what I said after um, Torrance's headline and paste it in here for me. <laughs> and and, I, and I'm, yeah, I'm not actually trying to be like funny or anything, but I mean, I guess I agree, right? Like, I think the continued issue with the Republican Party for me that that is causing so much frustration is that it, it is a continued um, it's continued behavior that shows that they are only here for power and not for mm-hmm. governing, not for representing their constituents. They are only here for power. That's it. And if that's not an issue for people, then we, we can't even have a, we can't even have a good faith debate yeah. because we aren't debating the same thing. It, I would challenge, and this might be shocking to some listeners. I have quite a few conservative friends, but I, w- I would genuinely challenge my conservative colleagues to take a step back and evaluate this as the poly- as the party of small government, limited government, states' rights, um, liberties, personal liberties, all the above. How can you then stand as a party that is restricting one of your own from speaking her mind and disagreeing with certain things? How can you, as a party, stand for governors stepping in and telling its citizens what they can and can't learn in schools, what they can and cannot teach, How can you as a party stand for the overt expansion of government um, under the previous administration and yet still find ways to um, differentiate yourself from your opposition party and say that their their means and their ways are going to lead to the carnage of America? I I look no further than January. of what carnage looks like in America caused by the QOP. I look no further than the multiple cities that have been burned due to the further suppression of liberties, no further than the QOP. So I, I just challenge any conservative who might be listening to this part and feeling like we're, we're speaking from a soapbox to think of where the party was pre-Trump and where it has moved since Trump? And how can you justify or stand by the overt silencing of individuals like Liz Cheney? It's about power and control. Their values of small government, states' rights, blah, 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 take, take a seat in the back when it comes to power and control. That's really what it's all about. The values that a party has, that this party has, um, are non-existent um, when it comes to power and control. That's and, what it's all and about. Tra- and Troy, I'd say like this, you know, people could call it a soapbox, right? But then I would challenge that by saying, 
when we were when we were not when we were in the minority when we we didn't have the presidency during under Trump's administration. We were not just sitting and playing defense all the time. We were still championing the bills that we wanted to. We were still passing stuff through the House. We were still out there sending a message about the the policies and the issues that we care about and that we are championing in in, in um, Congress. What have they done? Someone tell me what have they put forward? What have they championed? What have they what are they talking about other than the infighting in their party? Who's going to be the standard bearer with, with Trump? Who's going to run in twenty twenty four? Tell me one thing they're trying to do to actually help the American people. One thing. Name it. And what bills are they putting forward to help the American people? I do not see any. Tax credits and trickle-down economics. Not everyone can vote. <laughs> I mean, I mean yeah, no, yeah. That's what it is. Yeah, you got me there. That's been their priority is how can we shrink the voting population? Choose our voters since yeah, they don't the choose us. The answer to your question is there is nothing that actually helps people. It helps a small minority of people is what it does. Land votes, not people. Moving from one political catastrophe to another, um, per the New York Times, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu fails to build a governing coalition in Israel after five failed election attempts. Um, Something noteworthy to understand Israel politics is it works very similar to anyone who might follow UK um, politics, where there is a parliament and an election happens where a voting party is proportionally distributed into their parliament. Once that is reached a certain threshold for Israel is 61, that party, whether it is them alone or with a coalition, can then move on to govern through the prime minister. Israel does have a president who steps in and very similar to the queen, plays a role of how do you build this government? How do we um, get into negotiations? And what is noteworthy is after um, multiple attempts by Netanyahu to um, build a coalition, he once again failed to find one by the end of his deadline. And Mr. Reville, if I got that right, I, I own that I'm sometimes struggle with pronunciation. Um, the president of Israel has three days to now determine whether or not to extend the same offer to the opposition party um, or to kind of force Israel into its sixth election within, and correct me if I'm wrong, two years. Something noteworthy also to put on this is Netanyahu is currently facing charges of corruption and fraud in his um, state and is recognizing that the most cover he could get is by being prime minister. So my question for y'all as Netanyahu continues to weigh his odds, what implications does this have on... um, U.S. diplomacy and and our strategy in the Middle East as a major ally to the U.S. Um, I know I geek out over Israeli politics a little bit more than others might, but what do you, what are y'all's takes? Well, I first of all, <laughs> um, like what five, four or five elections in the last two years sounds like actual hell. So uh, my heart goes out to all the people that have had to live through that. Um, <laughs> Look, <laughs> I I was recently listening to, I believe, a pod save the world um, from Crooked Media, and they were talking about how Benjamin Netanyahu is he's similar to um, Trump, but the Israeli people have had him for twenty years, unlike us who only had Trump for four years, and. I actually, right before the pandemic hit, I was in DC at an APAC conference. And I don't remember exactly what APAC stands for, but it's basically the political action committee for um, American-Israeli relations. Um, And, you know, like 20,000 people go to this conference every year. And I was struck by how how much that conference had moved um, that that political action committee, which is supposed to be... um, uh, nonpartisan, um, how much it had moved I'm to the sure right. I'm sure that works out well. <laughs> well, I mean, like when you have, you ha- they had vice president, I mean, they had Democratic leaders and they had Republican leaders talk at it. But when you have most of the uh, 20,000 person like room chanting four more years with vice president at the time, Mike Pence, uh, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty nasty. Yeah, I was gonna say you can you can you can get mad at me and you, I could get in the same hot water as Ilan Omar, but where does the money go? Mm-hmm. Exactly. No, it's disgusting. So, uh, 
they had they also had Netanyahu on, and Netanyahu is just has this very hardline approach to um, Palestinians, to anything that threatens Israel, and I mean, just the other day or the other week or whatever, um, you know, we start we restarted the Iran nuclear talks. Iran is like Israel's sworn enemy in the region, right? Like sworn enemies with each other and. And Israel, I don't think it's been confirmed, but I think even U.S. intelligence came out and said that it was Israel, um, decided to attack a nuclear facility that Iran has and like cripple like the whole facility or whatnot. I don't remember all the details of the story, but this came right after we had just started renegotiating, getting back into the Iran nuclear deal. And it's it's pretty obvious what Israel is trying to do here. And. I'm not against Israel or anything like that because you kind of have to be careful with your words these days because the right will always label you as an anti-Semite whenever you criticize something. Even though they're the most anti-Semites. Ooh, T. Uh, <laughs> yes. I I think I'll be it's damned very... if someone calls me anti-Semitic because I have an international relations opposition to the way that we have we, – we engage in diplomacy with Israel. I will be damned. Yeah, and I'm uh, yeah. sorry I cut you off, Caleb, but also – there's a difference between being against the political structure of Israel and being an anti-Semite. You can stand against the things that are happening in Israel and the way that they have strategically taken settlements from the Palestinians over decades to increase and build up their state and still support the fact that Israel was created with an intentional purpose to do and fix a lot of wrongs from the past. Those are two very separate arguments and similar to you, Torrance, I'd be damned. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. My my answer to your question, Charles, is very long winded based off some recent experiences and things I've read up about it. But I guess what I'm trying to say, your question was kind of how it affects um, our diplomacy and people and whatnot. And, and on the diplomacy side, it's difficult to work with a government that's not formed. And it's difficult to work with a government that has so strategically under Netanyahu um, just kind of gone about and done their own things without the U.S. necessarily being involved with all of it. So it's difficult. It's challenging. Mm-hmm. It's a challenge. And this will, it'll be interesting to see if Israel can form a government uh, without Netanyahu as the head of that government. I, I, I don't have like a formal response to the initial question because I would say that when I was, when I was reading this earlier, um, my original thoughts were that the first thing I thought about it actually had nothing to do with Israel and more to do with like the comparison of a political ish, of a political uh, chaos that is that exists there and isn't existing here, and also how so many people hate our two party system, but have no idea how diff- difficult it would be to have a plurality and have to govern through a coalition. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that anyone here, like, do you know what? Like, we have terrible voter turnout in America. Does anyone know what that would look like if we had to have coalition governments and had to and had to uh, vote five times in a matter of two years absolutely not we would crumble under the weight of that pressure we would crumble under the weight of that pressure um but 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 not to the specific question but more so israel is a strategic ally for us in the middle east but apart from just being a security ally Mm -hmm. in the middle east what are they as a democratic ally is what i would be is what i would be asking and and just to, to to sew it up nicely and so that nothing gets misconstrued. My thinking that they are a pretty shitty ally to us when it comes to diplomacy and not just security and militarily in the Middle East um, has nothing to do with Judaism. Nothing to do mm-hmm. with Judaism. I love the Jewish people and I want them to pray however they would like. <laughs> Anyway, thank you all. Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President, no president has ever said those words from this podium. No president has ever said those words. And it's about time. Last week, President Joe Biden had his first address to a joint session of Congress, 
And I know I watched it. I know you two watched it. I'm looking for both of your reactions. Torrance, let's start with you. Um, are we going with a letter grade here? Because I'm going to give mm-hmm. him a solid B plus, A minus. Um, and I'm a hard grader. I'll say that. I I, I, I could come out and say get an A plus, but, but I want to say B plus, A minus one because it was it lacked some of the um length that i do love for my guy barack um but i do like that <laughs> that uncle that. joe was in the house being very casual yeah. um very comfortable he definitely looked in his element um but but more so than that i want to give a few shout outs his his not missing a mark and addressing madam vice president and madam speaker as a and, and marking it as a historical moment his coming out specifically and talking about lgbtq americans trans americans specifically young trans kids who are so brave and so i just want to say as far as as far as uh, content goes it's an a plus across the board um but i think we could have been a little longer we could have expanded on some of the mm-hmm. things i felt like he was going through and just kind of like knocking on each point which was great and i think that he w- he was making good use of his time but i would have liked to hear a little more of the details because mm-hmm. the devil is in the details it's funny you bring that up and uh, pause didn't miss the length honestly i'm so glad that we didn't have the uh and uh, like i i didn't need that from barack obama right now i didn't need <laughs> that that elongated way i also the, the moment... disrespect is noted <laughs> I, I, i'm just saying i'm just saying the moment calls for conciseness yes and i i think this comes back to um and something that i really noticed was this was one of those speeches where you you one saw Joe Biden in his element, but two you saw um, that he didn't allow for a lot of people to clap and applaud because he was on he was in his element, right? Like knowing individuals who have stutters and knowing individuals who have any type of speech impediment, those type of things can easily set you off. So I do think that this is something we'll adapt to when it comes to him in the space of. I know what I want to say. I'm going to say it. I might go off on tangents, but being able to keep myself in that box is more helpful than playing to the audience like we would see with a Barack. Um, all that to say, you graded higher than I would have. I would have given it like a, a solid B. It was great. Um, I think back to when he accepted uh, or his acceptance speech after the election, how Caleb, you and I noted um how he gives time to and gives space to other individuals, even though it's supposed to be his moment. So the Madam Secretary and Madam Vice President piece, you felt that more than you felt- Madam Speaker. Madam Speaker, sorry. Um, you felt that more than you felt him giving the speech. You you noticed that there were two females behind him. There were women being elevated to positions they should have been able to get for a long time. And he he not only acknowledged it, he took a point to say, why haven't we passed um, Equality Act yet? Why haven't we had a better conversation about the, um, why can't I think of the name of the bill? Oh dear. The Defense for Women Act? Violence Against Women Act. That's there we is. go. Um, so I, I really appreciate and, and glad that he took onus of that space. But one thing that I would push back on the devils in the details is, and I, I brought this up on Twitter a couple of days ago. Um, it was very funny to me how when, and don't shoot me for this, um, when Hillary Clinton was running for president, she was always detail oriented. She had reasons to say, here's how we would do this. Here's what we're going to do. Elizabeth Warren, when she was in the primary, she was known for, I have a plan for it. And that message did them more harm than good. And now we're in a sense and in a space where, one, we have an expectation that more plans come out because of the administration and and the need for it. But he does take some time to dive into those details. And that's when people tend to tune out and not really want to listen and so forth and so on. And uh, again, double standards in America. I just find that very jarring to me that that glass ceiling existed for two very powerful, influential women. And yet we now have this expectation for this white male who, again, doing a great job, love him, but it just leads me to be a little eh. So now that we have both your grades in, I guess it's my turn. And you know what? I would probably give an 89%, but if Joe Biden personally asked me if he could have a 90% for this class, I would probably say yes. 
That's so, where I'm living. Yeah. That's where I'm living. No extra, not going to make them do an extra assignment or anything. <laughs> I mean, uh, Congress hard, but, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> look, like I remember I, I missed a little, little snippets of it because I happened to be driving at the time and getting on my car a couple times. But, um, like I, I listened to it when I got home and the speech just felt very, it felt very like, look at the opportunity and, potent- and potential that we have to lift everybody up. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of echoing what you said about uh, making space for others. Joe Biden has been pretty good at doing that, I feel like, um, um, since he won the election and when he won it. Yeah. Um, if not before, I, I didn't pay attention as much before, I'll be honest. But um, <laughs> until South Carolina, at least. It felt like... Um, and I, I know I keep, I've said this a few times in the last few episodes, but, uh, the way he talks about what government can do for people makes it feel like government's working for you again, like you have said in the past trail. And I felt a way just feeling good. Um, um, I thought it was a good speech. I, I, I actually thought it was a little long, even though it's, it's, uh, shorter compared to historical records as both of you have pointed out. Um, I, I, I mean, like the devil's in the details. Yes. Um, but what he laid out, I thought was, um, necessary to talk, um, with the American people. It felt like he was talking directly towards us. And I thought that was important. I thought it was a great speech and, um, I'm, it kind of made me excited to see, um, what else we'll be able to pass, uh, before the midterms. Well, yeah. And I think that like, that's one of the things that's really great about the speech is that like, he doesn't mince words. Mm-hmm. Um, he does not give. And, you know, and this, I just almost used the word that reminded me of something that came right out of Senator Tim Scott's mouth afterwards, who gave an egregiously infuriating and quite frankly, insulting to most people um, response to it. But he wasn't giving Joe Biden wasn't giving platitudes. Mm-hmm. He was saying, this is what I stand for. These are the policies I'm advocating for. And here's what I want you to do. And he's not mincing any words about it. Um, and I thought that that was um refreshing quite frankly um because even um with his predecessors like with with president obama i loved his speeches because he was a uh, poetic and and eloquent speaker um no matter what's coming out of his mouth but he was very surface level and he didn't always get in the details and he was very and he did give often give platitudes Mm -hmm. um in places that i did not appreciate and so i will say that the uncle joe thing i was referencing before was was really great and he just was really straightforward um and I think that for, like you said, speaking directly to Americans, I think that was needed for a number of those topics. And I'll say yeah. it again, specifically for the young trans children um, that were watching and, and families of trans kids because of how um, just dark and ugly these bills against transgender kids um, in sports and other like uh, across the country have been. It's truly shameful. And I'm I'm incredibly embarrassed about it. Mm-hmm. And as the highest official to ever call for marriage equality, it- I feel like there was no, there shouldn't have been as much of a surprise that he took that that space, right, to make history and really call out the community and champion the community a little bit in that space. Um, but one one big takeaway that I had that I thought was interesting um, when talking about the COVID relief um, bill and the Amer- the American Family Plan, Joe Biden took a second to say we have the chance to eradicate child poverty and the left side of the aisle stood up they clapped but the right side stayed fairly silent cnn had cut to ted cruz at that point i tweeted at them i was like can we stop seeing ted cruz face no one wants that um <laughs> yeah i was like stop looking at ted cruz i don't want, i don't care for the drama i want to hear the speech no right. one needed to we see all him. know where he stands on this yeah but after that joe biden shifted to start talking about um, equity, inclusion, diversity. And that was a space where both sides of the aisle stood up and applauded. And uh, maybe this is just a pessimist in me, but I couldn't help but think about the fact that you have these two very important issues being talked about, right? And one, you would think and hope that both parties could get into, both, obviously. But Traditionally, you see the right side of the aisle not be the ones to want to talk about equity or or clap or applaud when things like that are happening. And this was mostly due to the actions that were taken for the um, hate crimes bill that was passed 
for Asian Americans dealing with hate crimes since COVID. But it also helped me realize that this is a moment for this administration, for all legislation, that diversity, equity, and inclusion is a focal point. It is something that people are thinking about, and Republicans specifically are noticing that they cannot continue the messages that they had. So how how do they take advantage of that moment? How do they they utilize that? Because that was the the one jarring thing that I really got from the speech. Yeah, I mean, Torrance, kind of you mentioned um, Tim Scott Tim Scott's reply. Um, yeah, I heard the words uh, uh, "America is not a racist country" and decided to pass on that one. <laughs> well, yeah, and here, if you don't mind, if I get into just a, a yeah. little rant for a second because this has been on my mind with Senator Tim Scott. Um, I like hesitate, right? I hesitate to call him, um, like they say that he's sold out. Like I hesitate to say those things because they feel like they can be like washed away as political comments. Um, but he did say two things and I, and I quote, um, that really pissed me off because it goes to show how like disconnected he is from the actual movement, how much he doesn't understand the issue, um, and how, or he is literally is selling out if he actually doesn't understand these things. And he said that he, that America is not a racist country. And he also said, do you know how many times people have called me an uncle Tom? And I said, you say those two statements, and if you just take those two statements and they're both 100% true, that's impossible because they wouldn't be calling you an Uncle Tom if we didn't have a history of racism. What is an Uncle Tom if this isn't a racist country? You have to explain to me what an Uncle Tom is if that's not the case because it's by virtue of this country's racism that the term Uncle Tom exists, sir. So take a seat, back seat, and stop using your, <laughs> your skin color to advocate for a party that doesn't give a shit about people who look like you. Yeah, publish that in my ad campaign one day. <laughs> look, look, the Republican Party, as we've discussed before, it's about power and control, and they mm-hmm. don't give a shit about uh, people that uh, don't look like them. I think he did a good job with the speech. Well, I mean, I didn't, I think say, the spe- a- I didn't say he didn't speak well. No, I think I this. I think the speech was things. actually good. I, I think. Oh, I did not agree. I think that. I think this was the first time that the conservative party had an opportunity to explain how it views the issue of race. I I think that the conservative party has failed on multiple platitudes. And I think Senator Scott did an immaculate job. I don't agree with a lot of things that he said, but did an immaculate job of saying, and very much to a point that we made, we spoke about earlier this is supposed to be a, com- a country of opportunities. This is supposed to be a country that al- if government is not involved, then things can happen the way that they should. And here's my story. Here's how I did that as a boy in South Carolina. Where have I seen most of my racial issues? From other African-Americans telling me I'm a sellout and I'm an Uncle Tom. Where have I I've found my voice? Through the conservative party and through saying there are liberties that we need to protect and that there are... Um, spaces where government needs to stay out. And again, I'm not saying I agree with it, but I do think that him on that moment in that space set the stage for something we haven't seen from the conservative party in years ever, honestly. And I, I was actually taken back by it of saying here, this gives an opportunity for your Candace Owens to come out and say, that is the message that I support. Everyone is calling me an Uncle Tom. Everyone's calling me a coon. All of these things. I don't know if we need to be explicit because I said that, but whatever. Everyone's saying all of these things about me. But the reason I'm a conservative today is because I'm tired of government trying to tell me how to be. I'm tired of government trying to tell me how to act. I saw my parents bring themselves up by the bootstraps. Obviously, we both know that that is another racial trope to make it seem like African-Americans and other minorities can't do things, even though there are systemic problems that are there. But I think that was the first time that we actually got a solid racial equity argument from the conservative party ever. I'm I'm not saying that he didn't, that he didn't draw a narrative for people that is consistent with the Republic, Republican party's ideology on this. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that although he did that, he was lying 
it was bullshit and it was not in context of reality and that's where i and that's where the problem lies right this is coming from the same man who stood in front of the entire on the senate floor and said how many times in the past two years have i been pulled over being black man a sitting u.s senator seven times drawing on the disproportionate and systemic racism that exists in policing and that's just one place and those are his words himself and then turns around and says that one systemic racism isn't a thing it's just not honest it's not honest. Yeah. And he rebutted it well of saying, I've made steps to fix that in government and was stopped by the then minority party. Also, we have this issue now because the vice president decided to follow up after and agree with him to some platitudes, which has been very frustrating to handle of, um, again, feeling the need to pretend like the soil that we stand on in this country is not drenched in blood. It's just about making this, like, honestly, it's about making this conversation palatable for literally It's every... about making it palatable for white people, yeah. people who are uncomfortable with the conversation around race. That's what that is. Yep. Yeah, that's the audience. My fellow Americans, trickle down. Trickle-down economics has never worked, and it's time to grow the economy from the bottom and the middle out. Right now, too many Americans are struggling to meet basic needs and cover basic expenses. And that's why, recognizing that issue, last week, President Joe Biden um, discussed in his joint address to Congress um, the introduction of the American Families Plan, one of the next big um, legislative agenda items for his administration. Um, This plan is going to be concentrating solely on human infrastructure and opportunity for families, such as making education more affordable and expanding opportunity providing economic security for families, including expansions of the tax credit and making them permanent, um, and help and helping workers and families um, when it comes to uh, child care, as well as uh, paying for education, both pre-K and uh, two years in a community college. Uh, Terrell, this bill, or not bill yet, this plan that the administration has put forward um, and will soon hopefully become a bill when the language is written, what are some of the parts that you think are most important in our um, our are principal to the larger democratic agenda um, on helping American families. Yeah. Um, I think noteworthy is that this is a $1.8 trillion um, plan in new spending that is hoping to bridge different programs and tax cuts over 10 years that are going to, like you mentioned, support workers, families, and children. Um, Really, it kind of breaks out into some big pieces. This is something that I was able to pull up on New York Times that really kind of dives into how they're focusing, looking at education, um, child family supports, specifically the IRS to build up some infrastructure and collect more money through it um, and those tax cuts like we mentioned. Looking at about um, 150, sorry, looking at about $511 billion in education so that there can be um, intentional serving of minority groups when they're looking at colleges and universities, making two years of free community college, providing more money to teachers, providing um, $85 billion more to Pell Grants, looking at how we can focus on um, completion and retention with about $62 billion. When you look at the tax cuts, it's looking at how can we expand healthcare, how can we expand the opportunities for families to succeed. Um, looking at an expansion of the ACA of two hundred billion, an expansion of the um, child earned income and child independent tax cuts by six hundred billion, and then focusing on that support where paid family leave and medical leave get a two hundred and twenty five billion dollar um, program. Uh, child care gets $225 billion. Nutritional program gets $45 billion. So this is a real opportunity for the administration to not only cement itself in American history, but also for the country to reflect on, and uh, like you mentioned, Caleb, how is the government showing up for them? We, we think about great presidents like FDR, JFK, um, LBJ. This is the administration's real call to say, Here's our policy. Here's how government 
can finally usher in um, the new century and be competitive with all of the other countries that we are um, fighting, metaphorically speaking, fighting against in um, just growth and development. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I want to bring this up just slightly to explain, like, you know how I was referencing, well, the Republican Party isn't putting forth anything that meets the issues of the day or, or the problems that families are facing. Like, I'm not saying that, right, just to make make a partisan point. I'm mm-hmm. saying that because, like, here we are with a with a Democratic president who is keeps putting plan after plan that is meeting the pavement with these issues, right? Mm-hmm. Like, which of us don't know somewhat know people who struggle to to afford childcare so they could so they can go to have a full-time job who struggles to pay for college who struggles um who doesn't know like t- teacher friends of ours who aren't making enough money and who are in, d- in schools that are falling apart and that don't have the investments made in them um on an infrastructure level nor on a human infrastructure level we don't pay teachers enough we don't have enough te- we have a shortage amongst teachers this puts nine billion dollars specifically to invest in strengthening the teacher pipeline and addressing those shortages um I just think that like when we're talking about like how can government work well, he keeps on putting his money where his mouth is, um, both like literally when it comes to the plans that he's putting forward and the tax dollars he hopes to spend, as well as the ways in which he's proposing to uh, go about funding these things. You know, with the infrastructure plan, it was an increase on the corporate tax rate um, with this one. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is this not a increase on um, capital gains tax? Correct, I believe. Correct. I believe, I, believe, so, yeah. I believe that there's an increase in the capital gains tax um, that's going to be paying for this. And both of those two ways, both of these bills, the way to pay for them is the most popular thing about the bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so kind of funny. I also I actually think that as far as a political um, as far as politics goes, this puts the Republican Party on their heels because I think that there's there's just overwhelming support about how we pay for these things. So then what are they going to do? Say they don't want to pay for it, despite that's what we want say that they don't want these things, that these problems, that these issues are not, to, are not real, that we don't actually need to find solutions to them. I just think that like, this is a, going to be a really interesting um, legislative argument. Yeah. Battle rather, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the family's plan put together with the infrastructure plan that was um, released, what, like a month ago. Yeah. Um, together, that's about $4 trillion. It's a $4 trillion economic plan, which feels like a lot, but uh Joe Biden has uh, said this before, and he said it at the uh, the joint session of Congress last week during his first address, um, that we need to grow America uh, from the bottom up and the middle out. And when we look at when we look at these two plans put together for the four trillion dollar economic plan, um, you're right, Torrance. He's putting his money uh, where his mouth is with this. This is going to support people. I'm actually. Um, part of, of all the stuff that this is doing, and there's a lot of it that I just love. I like the, uh, the universal pre-K, the free universal pre-K, the two years of community college is very enticing to me as well. Um, um, I know there's nutrition programs. There's just so much, so many good things that, that help, that help everybody and the richest people will pay for it through taxes. And I, I also think that the, the most popular thing of this bill being that, being that the richest, the wealthiest should pay more in taxes to pay for it is the most popular thing of this is that kind of cracks me up. I, I'm a slight nerd and really like the IRS investments because the IRS has been shorthanded and has not had the resources to operate um, in the way that it was intended to. Mm-hmm. And finally repairing that and giving it to resor- the resources to do that um, kind of helps us not let people, especially wealthier people, get away with tax evasion. And just this whole bill feels like hope. It feels like the future of our country can be bright. Now comes the hard part of actually passing it. But the ideas of this, I think, are what um, Americans have been wanting for years. I think this is, I just love this. I think it's great. Yeah, and and to the point of how hard this is going to be to get passed, um, it's interesting that little F word is always standing in the way, Mister Filibuster. I thought you were going to uh, say fuck, but <laughs> because because here's the thing, right here, here's something that's frustrating. So I think that like, <laughs> I think so something that's frustrating about this is that the Democratic Party in, in Congress is posturing itself in a way that is incredible, like in my opinion, appeasing 
um, the, the Republican Party and all of their ridiculous behavior by trying to sh- make make this show of bipartisanship, um, specifically for moderate Democratic senators like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Uh, but Mitch McConnell has already come out and said that any changes to the 2017 tax law, full stop, no negotiations, they will not be doing that. Both the infrastructure bill and this American Families Plan both do that. And the thing that really, really pisses me off, and I want to try to kind of explain this to people who don't follow politics um, all the time or, yeah. or governing, is the 2017 tax plan was passed through reconciliation completely along partisan lines. 100% along partisan lines through reconciliation without the input of the Democratic Party, right? They mm-hmm. are sitting here crying. They're not being bipartisan. We're not, that we're, we might go through reconciliation. We want to get rid of the filibuster. But your opposition is held up on a thing that you passed completely along partisan lines and through reconciliation. That's your stopping point. That is not compromise. That is not bipartisanship. That is obstructionist governing. And that's all the party can do at this point. That's all that they do. So it just is really frustrating to me, right? Because even if we were willing to come down the cost of this, and we were willing to cut some of the um, programs that are in this bill, we still aren't going to tax America, average Americans on this. We need to mm-hmm. raise the corporate tax rate. It was at 35. They put it down to 21. No one, nothing that no one asked for. Now it's going back to 28, which is commensurate with most of our with most of our allies and and modern nations across the country. Mm-hmm. And then this change in capital gains tax. I, I don't understand why people who like just because you make an investment because you have the money to make an investment that you're paying a hugely lower rate on that than someone who, than just earned income. It just it's just really frustrating to me that we continue to like again like I always say like we are in the the harder position politically when we have these conversations and we have these debates but mm-hmm. no one highlights how absolutely hypocritical and ridiculous their argument is because they are putting a stopping point on something that was 100% partisan. Yeah. Uh, I think there's three points I want to kind of get y'all's takes on. Um one jumping into the hypocrisy that you mentioned Torrance. Let us not pretend like the current tax rate has been this way for, well, now it's been decades, but has been this way forever, right? That those, The current tax rate changed during our lifetime under George Bush and to appease people as we're going to war and to fix a lot of economic issues we were having, the Bush tax cuts came into be. And that is what lowered all of the tax brackets that we currently have. And for the first time in, uh, I can't remember the statistic off the top of my head, but in the first time in, I think, three decades, you saw the wealthiest paying less than the middle class. So we're, we're in the space where Republicans are saying, well, if we hike up taxes again, we're going to see a mass exodus, exodus of corporations and, and people forgetting that that tax cut came and led to a legitimate recession in America. Thank you. So we can have this um, argument about hypocrisy and why certain actions need to be taken the way that they are, but let's get our facts straight when we're going to do that. But the two questions I really have for y'all is one, do you feel that this new term that we've come up with, I don't know if it's new, I just haven't heard it until Joe Biden, of human infrastructure is a selling and winning message? Do you think it's connecting to people and it's understandable? And also, do you feel like this idea that he's going to be the jobs president, the only way for America to succeed right now is to invest in its people and build up jobs, 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 jobs. We don't talk about jobs enough. Do you think that those two messages are doing the work that is needed for these type of plans to not just be popular, but for us to see those town halls where um, after the Affordable Care Act passed, you saw a lot of Democrats being ran out of their town halls because people were upset by the messaging, upset what they heard the plans are. Do you think Republicans can see that kind of tidal wave based on how the administration is messaging with those two terms or policies? Before I answer your questions, Terrell, um, back to back to the whole conversation about uh, Republicans being upset that there might be changes to their tax uh, bill that they passed in 2017. You know, at least, at least our, at least these plans, um, we have a way that uh, they will be paid for, right? Because your tax, your tax plans that you have passed, Republicans in 2017, led to a massive increase in the deficit. So don't go telling us that we're spending too much money. 
just to clarify, it does have a way to be paid for. It was a short-term tax credit for the middle class that then expired, coincidentally, the year after Donald Trump would um, no longer be president if he was a one-term president. But keep those tax credits in place for the wealthiest amongst them, specifically corporations. So that was the balancing act of how they were going to pay for it. Love that. And an incremental increase for the middle class over the next five years. And that's why yes. people saw a 6% increase in their taxes this year. Correct. That's so fantastic. Uh, to answer your question, Terrell, um, I think my short answer is I do think this is the way to go about it. And I think it's the way to go about it because, first off, I think we live in a completely different um God, it feels like a world um, than we did when ACA was passed. I, like, we're just coming off a pandemic. It's still a pandemic. Let's not. Let's get that straight. It's still a pandemic, even though there does feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And jobs, after everyone's lost jobs this year, I feel like is a good thing to hit on. But also, I think there's an argument to be made that nearly any domestic policy. Um, um, and even foreign policy to an extent that the uh, that our government partakes in or advocates for, um, no matter what affects the people. So I think having the message that we are uh, working for you, we want to support you, the people of America, um, by giving you jobs. <laughs> I think those two messages together. Uh, I think can be really effective. And I think that the way that, that this administration has chosen to go about um, um, spreading that message, um, just the way that Joe Biden uh, has conducted his speech in the messaging that we get from the White House, it feels very much that they're oriented towards helping people. And ultimately, I think it is a good message. I agree. I think that if we continue to define what human infrastructure is, especially those who rely on such things or really need those things in their life, then it will really, it will click. You know, when we're talking about high quality, safe childcare, that is an actual piece of like infrastructure, right? Like what infrastructure I think about is like these things that allow us to like live through our day-to-day -day, move from space to space and in that like a lot of people a lot of women leave the workforce because they have children because it actually costs more to send them to a to high quality child care than it does for them to go to work and make money like the cost benefit is just not there and like additionally you know like this bill is investing three billion dollars in maternal health because this administration recognizes the disparity and um you know from white white um mothers to black mothers and and Infant, mort or infant mortality death and maternal mortality death, mm -hmm. uh, mortality rates. Um, and I think that that's really important when we're talking about providing comprehensive paid family and medical leave, that is human infrastructure. When you can't leave because you can't take a, you know, a couple weeks off because you just had a child because you're not, because you're not the woman or if you're a woman and you don't have that built in, or if you, you know, Gen X people like my mom's age, they are now in a space where like, you know, they have children, but they also are going to have to move into the space where they're going to be taking care of their parents at some time in the future. And we don't have the infrastructure in place for that or the benefits in place for that. Um, and I just think that like, as long as we message what those specific things are, right? The devil's in the details, friends. That's why I wanted it to be explained in the speech. Mm -hmm. That like that's going to help people understand this human infrastructure thing. Um, I I think that an abstract, it's difficult to understand if no one defines it for you. But as soon as it is, I think it clicks and makes sense as a as a um, kind of moniker for the overall encompassing all of the, all of those plans. And so, like we said, you know, when, when this bill or when this plan, you know, has the bill language put out. Um, by the Democratic Caucus and by the administration, we'll definitely be getting into that in more detail to understand what actually makes it um, into the bill from this plan. However, I did want to pose this question to you guys because with the infrastructure bill as well as with the American Families Plan, um, why do you guys just like, you know, from your heart and from your mind, like, why is this important? Why do you think that these two things are important for our country at this moment and how do they meet the moment? Hmm. Well, I think the moment is that the moment, or should I say the reality of the moment, is that it's been a year of global virusy destruction. <laughs> um, that was kind of a weird way to put it, I guess. I, I think it's been a lot of years of hurt and pain 
um, under certain policies and now a pandemic um, for the average American person. And I think now introducing things that really support the people, the people of this country are what's going to make this country great. And so, and the government's duty, and I, I know this is like a philosophical argument between Democrats and Republicans, but for me, the government's duty is to support its people. And so I think, I think that these bills are important um, for the country, of course, but for the people. And I think that's the most important. Finally having a government that is proposing to actually work for us and support us and give us back the opportunity that the American dream is supposed to be. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, um, I like that last point you made, Caleb, uh, giving us back hope of what the American dream is supposed to be. I think... I think at the start of uh, this conversation, we even highlight highlighted that American politics have not entered the 21st century by, by and large in any way. There's no onus that you can't make a living with our current minimum wage. You can't survive in our country if you only made $7.50. You, you can't be a family of three right now um, with just a bachelor's degree between the two um adults and still function. You can't even have a job and just be two parents with one child because of um, childcare. And then let alone getting into infrastructure where we're talking about how decayed our roads are, how unconnected we are between states to be able to connect. Like um, Torrance, I'm sure you can relate to this. 75 has been worked on since I was born and has never been perfect and has always caused traffic, but that's the only way that someone from Michigan can get all the way down to Florida. There's been no expansion and no effort to not only connect the country, but also own that this country is still stuck in a time that we might romanticize and think was perfect, but it wasn't. And um, I'm probably coming off too far from the left now because I, I can't help but highlight FDR and LBJ, these two consequential presidents who took onus of this is a moment, this is a space where the country needs to grow and adapt, and we want to be the presidents that lead us there, right? Um, So I look at this plan and I look at what this administration is doing. And like Caleb said, I'm hopeful that the American dream can once again be something that is obtainable. We can stop looking at each other as millennials and making jokes that we're never going to own a house or Social Security is just a begotten dream for us. We can stop this idea that all the promises we had when we were children, all the things that our parents hoped that they would have by the time they've reached the age that they are, is no longer obtainable because we're making an investment now to say this is the direction that America is going. And ironically, with the whole America's not growing fast enough, I do think it's interesting to call back to um, point that was made in our last episode that there is a very sizable tax credit to have a child now. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Terrell, Terrell always so loquacious in his responses. <laughs> <laughs> Vocab word alert. Um, no, no, I just want to, I'll just be um, like concise and, and say that I, I largely agree with what both of you are saying, but the sentiment that, that I really would like to evoke is, is kind of more closely with what Caleb said, which is, I think that this is the kind of policy and both like physical and human infrastructure that makes the American dream more possible again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it acknowledges, like you said, Terrell, the fact that if you are like, say, you know, me or you coming from, you know, a low to middle income family, having to take out loans to go to school, doing everything you're supposed to be doing, trying to get a good job that like this could possibly make that work again. When right now doing all of those things and doing what you're supposed to do have not come out on the other end with it working. Um, and I look forward to, to to being a part of a generation that addresses those issues and continues to push for policies um, that are in line with actually making the American dream obtainable. Take us on a tangent, Torrance. Yes. 
Mine is going to be nice, short, and sweet, and a little more fun this week since I was being a little hyped up about the Republican Party at the beginning of the episode. My tangent <laughs> this week is, you know what, guys, I understand um, I understand having vaccine hesitancy. I understand people having their concerns, um, but what I don't understand is not wanting to do any of your own research, not wanting to actually understand what, your, what, what this hesitancy is about. I think that, that there is... Um, I think that there is honest hesitancy because you don't have all the information. But if you're not willing to go look for it yourself, investigate it yourself, study it yourself, or go ask the person with the knowledge, the right questions to get that, that you aren't justified in just deciding to not do something that can bring us back to normal and keep the people around you safe. I'm having a vaxxed boy summer. I'm two doses deep and I'm ready to go. Can we just keep it hot girl summer? Like, let's not make Vax Boy Summer thing. I don't like it. I don't like uh, it. It's a Vax Boy Summer. Thank you. No. Also, Pfizer gang. Take us on a tangent, Kate. Pfizer gang. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Take us on a tangent, Caleb. That's so millennial of us. <laughs> <laughs> My tangent this week, I have two quick short things as well. The first thing is... Uh, over the last few days, I have decided to try my hand at growing an avocado tree. Yes, that is what you were looking at over there. Um, will it work? I don't know. If it does, I uh, won't have any avocados growing from it from anywhere between five and 13 years. So I'm in for the long haul. Um, <laughs> so see you for Cinco de Mayo in 15 years? Yes. Um, apparently, they're supposed to be amazing. It's worth it, I guess. Um my second tangent is on is Monday night. Or just an update? It's slightly an update, but it's also a tangent because it's off topic. Um, I watched Godzilla versus Kong on Monday oh, night. Oh, Jesus. And uh, it's not supposed to be a good movie. Let's just get that straight. It's not supposed to be a good movie. But, but it was good. Something about being in a pandemic for, you know, a year plus now and uh, just not really seeing a lot of new movies. Um, a couple monsters brawling it out was what I needed. And uh, I'm not going to lie. I am a big fan of Godzilla. That's it. Terrell, I think it's your turn to take <laughs> us on a tangent. I'm going to have two quick things just because, yeah. Um, I did not gone. get that memo. Well, I didn't actually mean to, but when we had the whole Pfizer gang moment, it, it reminded <laughs> me of a conversation that I had with a friend who actually got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and without hesitation or anything, my first reaction was like, Ooh, I'm sorry. Like you. And we got into a, <laughs> you classist. we got into a very deep conversation about that, about how only millennials could take something as good as a vaccine and make it into an elitist structure of, well, I got Pfizer or I, when I got my vaccination, I was talking to a friend who now lives out in Oregon um, and we were texting back and forth and he, um, I said, oh, which one do you think I'm going to get? And without hesitation, he said, you're probably going to get Pfizer. It sounds bougie. It sounds like it's a little bit more expensive. That sounds on par with you versus Moderna. That sounds like a cheap white refrigerator you would find in the ghetto. Like that is how, get we, out of here. that is how we act as millennials. So I just, I think it's funny that we can have this <laughs> I conversation. I reject that. <laughs> You know, the first thing you saw was Nene Leakes walking into that house like, ooh, child, the get, let us find you a home. That's how I see Moderna every time someone tells me they got it. Even though Pfizer did try to kill me. Okay, into my actual job. Hey, don't spread Allegedly, that. allegedly, okay, allegedly. No, I, the attorneys will not no like basis. that. <laughs> I, I know that the vaccine worked because I did have some side effects. I am clearly talking to you all today. Um, while we might, thank you for poking my arm, Caleb. I had to double check. <laughs> <laughs> um, while we might make jokes and talk about these vaccinations in a certain way, everything that you mentioned, Torrens, is important of do your research, know what's happening. As I was going through it, I was Googling what were some of those side effects just so I could be more aware. Found out that I had some side effects that have only been seen in the UK, which is super interesting. But um, these are things that are important to know and talk to people. Let them know that. I was actually able to connect with some family and explained some of the side effects I had and found out that it might have been a family thing because my my stepsister and other individuals in my family had very similar reactions. Huh. Um, Interesting. 
So that little PSA. But my real tangent I want to get on is more focused in pop culture and fashion real fast. Just want to jump into it. We need to bring back the 90s. Guys need to be able to wear crop tops. I'm tired of people acting like wearing crop tops and wearing things that are quote unquote feminine, like rompers, um, is out of style or is inappropriate or makes and tells people what your sexuality is. Like some of people's most favorite, uh, most favorite, anyway, pictures of Will Smith and Johnny Depp from the 90s are with them wearing crop tops. So I'm just going to jump on this soapbox for two seconds. Tell the men out there if we're having some vaccinated boy summers, whatever you called it. (laughs) Hot girl summer. Hot girl summer. Pull out a crop top. They're free. Crop top summer. (laughs) Crop top summer. They're free, fun wear, and it's just a vibe. Like, I'm over. If we're really going to enter, quote unquote, new normal, we need to make some investments and some efforts to really institute and make society not only better, but more fun, more accepting. And that's one of the things that have been under my skin lately. Short shorts, crop tops, and high socks, baby. It's a Vax Boy summer. <laughs> I can't. Nope, nope. Done with that one. I can't. Well, that's our show. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know what? Yeah, yeah. And that's our show. We have gone off the rails this week. I'm Torrance. <laughs> I'm Terrell. And I'm Caleb. And we're dangerously likely to see you next week. Ba-dum-bum, ba-dum-bum, ba-dum-bum.